The following sermon from Sunday, October 27th, 2019, by Benny Phillips is titled, A Table in the Mist, from the series Memento Mori, The Message of Ecclesiastes. All right, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 9. Ecclesiastes, chapter 9. We are, for those of you who are uh, new, we are in a series on the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, Memente mori means remember your death. That's one of the things that the preacher, that's what he calls himself, the author of, of Ecclesiastes. He, he is using this wisdom literature, his, the sayings, the poetry, the, the way he's writing this, he's communicating that one of the best ways to live life is to remember that one day you will die. And he, he does that because so often he knows that we do not want to think in that way. And that that idea carries throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. This morning, we're going to pick up in chapter 9. starting in verse 1. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and to the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As is the good, so is the sinner, and he who swears is as he who shuns the oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of men are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go, eat your bread in joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Again, I saw under the sun the race is not to the swift nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net and like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of men are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls on them. Lord, I pray that you would help us again, once again, understand what it is the preacher is trying to communicate to us and why it is so difficult for us to embrace it. 
Help us this morning, Lord, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I love Thanksgiving. I really do. I love Thanksgiving more than I do Christmas. And the best part of Thanksgiving is when, after the meal, the 15 or so adults in our family, and with now some teenage grandchildren, sit, laugh, tell stories. We just engage in leisurely conversation, sometimes banter. And sometimes... I enjoy just sitting there, listening and watching, and for the most part, enjoying what is happening. It really is the highlight of my year. Sometimes when I'm watching, it can be very surreal to me. Like this is, how did, how did we have these children? How, do we, how did we get this huge, loud, dysfunctional family sometimes, and yet it's just such a wonderful experience. That's what I thought of as I was preparing this message, because I realized that starting at the end of chapter 2, and now for the sixth time here in chapter 9, so from chapter 2 to chapter 9, six times in this brief span of, of passages, he has said, eat, drink, and be merry. Because that's pretty much it. And that's when it should begin to dawn on us as we read through this, that it's not with an attitude of, because that's pretty much it. That's been some of the struggle that people have had over the years, not understanding the book of Ecclesiastes. A few weeks ago, if you remember, in chapter 7, I used a quote by C.S. Lewis uh, from an essay, The Weight of Glory, to help explain to us some of what the, the preacher was trying to say about both the beauty and the danger of nostalgia. And, and while nostalgia and, and what I'm talking about here in terms of remembering and enjoying the, the holiday experience, although they're, they're different, there is something common in, in those two things that we're talking about here. Two common things. Remember C.S. Lewis said, he, he warned us not to make idols out of our memories, but to experience them for what they are. Echoes from a far off land we have not yet visited. And it began to dawn on me as I was reading and studying the book of Ecclesiastes, trying to make sense of some of these things, that perhaps the preacher is not as agnostic about the afterlife, about heaven, as he's led us to believe. Perhaps he's telling us in a very straightforward and sometimes caustic way what Lewis skillfully and kindly tells us in his writings, and, and namely, that is the idea of, of what actually Jeffrey Myers in his commentary on the book of Ecclesiastes refers to Ecclesiastes as a table in the mist. 
That what's happening here is, if you think about this, this scene of a, of a banquet table sitting out in this beautiful, this would be now the influence of Lewis, sitting out in a beautiful meadow that, you know, that, that just the sun is shining down on it and the morning dew is coming in on it and it just evokes all kinds of wonderful thoughts and you want to have that meal, you want to get there but then it begins to vanish. You realize this life, the simplicity of this life at times, we, we make life so complex, so challenging, so difficult. We, we get going trying to, to make our way in the world, to earn a living, to advance, to grow, to gain as the preacher says, rather than recognize that, no, what we're experiencing, yes, we need to be responsible. Yes, we need to toil. He says those are good things. But recognize that what we long for are those Thanksgiving moments, are those memories of times at the beach, those, those moments that are not very many, and they seem to vanish. What I hope to do this morning is show that, chap that verses 7 through 10 that I read with some supporting ideas from the New Testament really is his way of saying that God gives us a longing that the table in the midst would soon be permanent and that this is a wonderful visual communication and a demonstration of what preaching and living the gospel is all about. So, the chapter is divided into three sections. The beginning and the ending of the chapter are the typical, stated like it is, truth from the preacher. And right in the middle, verses 7 through 10, are what living life in the midst of that is to look like. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to move verses 7 to 10 to my third point to make the outline go a little bit smooth, more smoothly. So verses one through six, one of the things he is, I think, communicating to us is that we live in a broken world, but we can be both broken and ready for what he has for us. We talked about this. He's talked about this before. The promise of control in our lives is a very seductive thought. We want to control our lives. We tell ourselves that we do not have to be victims of our frailty and our mortality. That we can define and shape ourselves and become what we really want to be. We can make ourselves what we really want ourselves to be. And we tend to live as if the one thing that is certain, death, really isn't certain. And that those, all those things that are uncertain are certain. Death, the preacher has told us over and over and over again, is the stark reality, the stark reality certainty that we face. There's a common human destiny that we, all, that we all have, a common human destiny, and that's death. And during life, both the righteous and the wise, 
and the unrighteous and the foolish are all touched by misery and folly. It rains on the just and the unjust, the scripture says. And that means that that there are showers of blessing and there are torrents of suffering. It's going to happen to the righteous and the unrighteous. When he uses the phrase under the sun, what what he's saying there is, is in our lives, under the sun, the life that we live. Under the sun. In our lives, we cannot make sense out of the prosperity of the wicked and the suffering of the saint. Job had wealth. But Job very humbly stated when he lost his family, when he lost his wealth, the Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The readers of Job, we understand when we read Job that some of the why of the bad things that happened to him, but Job was kept in the dark. God remained God, even though Job was kept in the dark. I remember my father had a, had a disease uh, that <clears throat> is too long to pronounce, but what it was doing is it was, it was, it's a Parkinson's-like disease, but rather than shaking, you, everything freezes up. And so you get really stiff, your muscles get stiff, you can't swallow, you can't, you know, end up not being able to breathe. He was sick, and there had been some things, some, some serious regrets that he had in his life. And one Thanksgiving, I was driving him back to, to his home, and he said, do you think... If you prayed and I asked forgiveness and dedicated the rest of my life to God, that he would heal me. Now, that's tough to hear your father say something like that. But I had to speak the truth. Yes, I will pray for your healing. No, and I believe God can heal you. But if he does, it won't be because you've bargained with him. It'll be because in his mercy and his grace, he's healed you. But how often do we do that with God? We bargain with him for blessing. That's us trying to deny the reality that There are things that happen that that more than living well, we need to learn how to die well, to be prepared. And actually, to, to be prepared to die well is to live well. The stark reality of death is not meant to bring us to a place of despair. And the world thinks that that they can avoid the despair by pretending that it's not going to happen. But dying well doesn't mean that we can't, that we're not to be brokenhearted when we're touched by death. The reality is that grief is suffocating at times. And it comes upon us many times unexpectedly later after we've experienced death, or not personally, but in our, you know, in our family or whatever. We, it, 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 it attacks, it suffocates us. We are broken, but we can be ready. 
Death reminds me I am not God. And it means that the world is still under the effects of the curse. And that means I am too. And that it's only by the mercy of God that I'm not immediately consumed. It means I'm going to lay up treasure in heaven and have an open hand to the things of this world. It means I will pray for supernatural healing until the day the cancer has had its way. Life is worth living because God is God and the living have an opportunity that the dead do not. That's the point he's making in chapter in verse 5 about the dead dog and the lion. Life is worth living because God is God and the living have an opportunity that the dead do not. That is to enjoy what God is doing in our lives now, regardless of the circumstances that we face. The Christian path through the madness and the folly of our culture is to fear God, to live for his glory, and to do what we can do with all of our might, to, to do what your hand finds to do, he says in verse 10, with all of your might. And that includes the ordinary things, the echoes of a far-off land, eating, drinking, fellowshipping with one another. Verses 11 and 12 come back to this theme to communicate that, you know what, if you don't live this way in verse 7 and through 10 that I'm going to talk about in a minute, then you're never going to see the death coming. You're never going to see the challenges. You're not going to be prepared for life as it really is. It, it, it's, when we tend to treat death as if it's uncertain, then when the certain begins to come upon us, we are not prepared for it. There's a scene in the uh, 1960 version of Pollyanna, that's probably the only part of the movie Pollyanna that the preacher would have liked, where uh, a young Carl Malden comes out as the preacher in this, this uh, uh, Episcopal church, and he stands up there, he calmly opens his you know, Bible, and then in a very loud voice he goes, Death! Death comes unexpectedly! And everybody's... And then, of course, Pollyanna and her little friends are laughing, and you know. And that's, that's kind of what the scene's trying to communicate. Boy, isn't that funny that he would come out and just shout that as if that's some kind of good message? That somehow that's supposed to motivate. There's this, you know, Pollyanna is a an idea even that, you know, we don't have to worry. It's kind of the 1960s version of Akuna Matata. We just, no worries. And you know what? We don't have any worries if we've dealt with the realities of where all of this is going. But you do have worries if you think you don't have worries. The only time to worry is when you don't think you have anything to worry about. If you know you've got stuff to worry about, you don't need to worry. You're prepared for it. Listen. We live in a world, a 
of cause and effect. But we also have begun to believe that we can control it. That somehow we can be in charge of it. Listen, let me just read you a few famous headlines and quotes from years ago. From our uh, State Department guy. Secretary of State. The Vietnam War is going well and will succeed. Go back even further in history. What can be more absurd than a locomotive traveling twice as, twice as fast as stagecoaches? This is from a journal in, in England that is an old, old version of an uh, American medical uh, periodical. This is the doctor saying this. The abdomen, the chest, and the brain will forever be shut from the intrusion of the surgeon. And here is a quote from the president, CEO of IBM. The world market for computers is about five. Now, they were so certain that they probably would have bet their life on those things, and they would have lost. There's no such thing as a sure bet. He says here that, you know, that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong. Well, wait a minute. I mean, nine times out of ten, the swift does win the race. There's a reason why... Bookies make money, you know, and then those who are foolish to play the underdog every once in a while get it right, but the bookie doesn't suffer because he's got all the money from the people who bet on the sure thing. Listen, we live in a world where there are times that the race doesn't go to the swift, the battle to the strong, the good life to the intelligent, the great paying jobs to those who are educated. The moment you decide that you're going to jump on the bandwagon with the sure bet, the God of the unforeseen will come in and take care of it. And then the moment you think, I'm going to go with the underdog, is when the sure thing comes through. Just like the fish and the birds in verses 11 and 12, you never see the trap coming. When you place your heart on trying to control the things that are certain or uncertain, you will experience what James talks about in chapter 4 of his book, Sorry, I'm going to go there earlier. I'm going to read from James 4, verses 13 through 15. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist. Mist. 
that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this and do that. Verses 7 through 10 here in Ecclesiastes really is the heart of what the preacher's trying to say, what the preacher's trying to say to us. It really is his version, if you will, of the gospel. Remember in our first week, our discussion about the use of the word vanity and meaninglessness that he uses through here. And when speaking of holding on to things uh, of this world, those words do have impact. They, it, it does mean that in, in a certain context that, that vanity, I mean, it's all meaningless. All of this stuff is meaningless. But really the word also in, in context can mean vapor or mist or even breeze and breath. And sometimes that's what it's capturing more. So in, in, in verses 7 through 10, when he talks about our vain lives, he's really more saying what James is saying. Our lives are but a mist. It's not that they're meaningless. It's not that they're, they're uh, not going anywhere. It, it's, it's just like that table. It's, it's a wonderful thing. It's a beautiful thing. You, you want to participate in it. You want to enjoy the food that's there. You want to engage with it, but recognize that the mist is going to, to disappear. And, and we, like that mist, are going to vaporize. It's passing. It's not permanent. It's fleeting. And what the preacher is trying to say to us in these verses is that I want to encourage you. The dying are the most alive people that there are. Go, he says in verse 7. Go. Go forth. It's not a, you know, well, hey, what will be, what be, will be, just do the best you can. No, he's saying, go, go forth, go seize the gifts that God has given. You are dying. You don't have a lot of time. Go, eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine and be merry. But he expands it here. Let your garments be white. Is this some Religious reference to holiness? I don't think so. I mean, people who were distraught wore sackcloth sackcloth and ashes. I think when he says, let your wear white, I think what he's saying is, look, don't think because you're dying that you shouldn't look good. Get decked out. Fix your hair. Put on your makeup. Trim your beard, Joey. Put on the cologne. Life is colorful, it's beautiful, and it's worth celebrating. Enjoy your spouse. Have fun together. Enjoy the relationship. Cherish the person that God has given you to share your vain life. Enjoy the children that he brings along with you. Because you know what? And he said this in other places. You're going to be gone soon and your name's going to be forgotten. Legacy 
He, we've talked about this. Legacy is vanity in the other use of the word. Legacy, no, no, legacy doesn't mean anything. Listen, the church that I pastored for 20 years in, in Fairfax just had their 40th anniversary. And we were watching some of the uh, video of that 40th anniversary. And there's people testifying about the work that the church done. There was a guy that stood up and told the story that I've told you probably too many times about the miracles that God did as we were building the building and the finances that were prepared. And in all of the video that I watched, like, nobody mentioned my name. Excuse me. I started that church. I served there for 20 years. You wouldn't be in that building if it wasn't for me. And then it was like, I just had an Ecclesiastes moment. He's absolutely right. I'm not even dead. And they've forgotten me. Now, who knows? Maybe on the 50th anniversary, they'll put a bust of me out in the hall or something. <laughs> but I doubt it. Listen. The things I remember about those 20 years in Fairfax really aren't. They are the things that would cause you to forget the pastor's name. Because they're the things of relationship, the church picnics, the small groups where you cared for one another and prayed for one another and you had deep, meaningful fellowship. Listen, the preacher in talking about eat, drink, be merry, you know, put on white linens, put all on your head. It's not meant to be an exhaustive list. Maybe, maybe if he were writing it today, he would say, Ride a bike. See the Grand Canyon. Enjoy a movie. Visit the sick. Cook a meal for some new moms. Have a jam session with the young people. Watch the game. Learn to speak Spanish for crying out loud. Spend your money. Adopt a child. Speak about Christ. Give your fortune away. Disciple a young kid. Go to community group for crying out loud. The crying out loud is my... I just added that. These are the things that are going to matter. These are the things that do matter. David Gibson, in his book, Living Life Backwards, which is from Ecclesiastes, says, sin fractures everything, distorts everything. It means we cannot understand everything, but sin does not uncreate everything. So if we are to tap into the preacher's worldview and train of thought, it helps to expand this list. You know, really, this, this fine line that we have to walk between enjoying God's gifts and not loving the world. You know, how can we love life if it's just a mist and, 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 and is going to disappear? How can we love? That's the only way to love life. Because if you understand that it is a mist that is going, you probably have the right perspective. Because what's going to tether you to this world is to think of those things as more important 
than they are the things that we have. When people make uh, sex their God, they soon find out that it's disappointing, that it's not enough, and they become chained to it. Women, woman who worships her children is soon disappointed and frustrated because they, they don't do what she wants them to do. Listen, you can fill in the blanks. When you worship God's gifts, they never deliver as promised and they leave us broken and empty. And growing up, heaven seemed like, you know, this, this place where you go and you sit down and you play the harp and, you know, it, it, they're just... Like, it wasn't inviting. What Lewis is saying to us, and he actually says this in, in, in the end of the, uh, his last Chronicle, Chronicles of Narnia, the, the last battle. He, he says, come into a deeper country. What, what makes him so clever, what makes Lewis so clever, is that he makes a, he brings a magical feel to something that is fleeting, He helps us to see the beauty of this world without being put off by the misuse of it or uh, making it an idol. He places it in in a very Ecclesiastes perspective. He says this, It was the unicorn who summed up what everyone was feeling. He stamped his right forehoof on the ground and neighed and then cried, I have come home at last. This is the land I have been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason we love the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked a little bit like this. Come further up. Come further in. That's really what the preacher's doing. Lewis does it very nicely, beautifully. The preacher just steps in our face and says, we eat and drink and we vanish from the earth like a vapor. But here's the thing. It is a taste. D.E. Ford in his commentary called Self and Salvation Being Transformed, said this. Jesus literally ate his way through the Gospels. Think about that. The amount of time that Jesus and food are mentioned together is staggering. He, here, the, the preacher really is giving us and holding out before us what it means to, to live life as it's meant to be lived, to proclaim the gospel the way it's meant to be proclaimed. Listen, we know this about Jesus. Even just reading that quote, it's like, yes, that's true. The table is so, such a central part of what he did in his life. You know what? The table would make a wonderful biblical theology study because we see throughout Scripture, actually, the table, food, fellowship, it's central to us. This life is to be enjoyed in relationship with one another. Jesus uses the staple of the bread to communicate the nature of his suffering. 
to demonstrate by the tearing of the bread, the brokenness that sin brings into this world and the suffering that is the result. He takes the wine and he informs them, his disciples, that it it will be his blood that is spilt instead of ours. That his obedient life would earn our salvation and that to participate in the drinking of the wine is to accept that payment for our sin by the shedding of his blood as the necessary atonement. All of this communicated the table where they were feasting. But it is different from the world. It's not a party so much as it is Thanksgiving. Because I told you how sometimes that Thanksgiving thing is so surreal that it, 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 can, it can feel almost like unreal. We can be laughing and teasing, really connecting with joy, and all of a sudden, someone starts a sentence with, I remember a time. Or, kids, I wish you had known your papa. Or, man, this gravy is as good as Nanny's. Oh, gosh, I miss her. And the joy becomes a deep, deep longing for fellowship with the one who's missing at the table, longing to see them. But in those moments, death doesn't sting as much as it brings a depth to our fellowship. And the memories are both poignant and rich. Preachers making sense now. Death, sickness, uncertainty, sorrow, suffering can certainly dislodge us from seeking security here. But what makes us long for heaven What makes us homesick for a land that we have not been to are these gifts that he gives us. It's as if we've wandered into that meadow, all neatly dressed. The weather is perfect. The smell of rich fare, the scent of great wine, the laughter of those we cherish. We begin to realize that not only does it feel like a dream, but there is a mist that's beginning to cover it all. And we realize that what we're really longing for is that table to be permanent. We shed a tear, a tear of longing, a tear of joy. For one day we know it won't just be our family. But it'll be the family that we've been born again into. And the head spot won't be for me or granddad or his father. It'll be for our God and our King and our Savior. And we will sit at that table with no mist for as long as we want. And what we need to do with this life right now is live knowing that that table is set in the mist. But it is the echo of heaven that can change our lives and the people that we are sharing that with.